Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. pray that you would give us that type of courage, that type of faith, that it would not be shaking in the midst of trials and sufferings and all sorts of things that go on in this world, but that we put our trust wholly in you, knowing, Lord, that you're the same today, yesterday, and forever. We live today in a world that has rejected your existence, has rejected your work, and has rejected your truth. As fools, they have said there is no God. Your word tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth, for they've known about you and it's been plain because you've shown it to them. Your invisible attributes, your eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that you have made so that we are all without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And because of this, you have given them up to dishonorable passions and to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Father, we are seeing the results of this curse two millennia later. All of us have been part of this. Lord, we were sanctified. We've been washed. We've been regenerated. And so, Father, we ask that the light may also permeate the darkness in their lives. For in the midst of this darkness, you have called and commanded us that the righteous shall live by faith. So we come together this morning to ask for your strength to walk in the light as Christ is in the light, that we may be examples to them, that we may be courageous in standing for the truth and proclaiming the gospel. Father, there are many needs in our church this morning that you would increase their opportunities to share their work and to teach others. In the same way, Lord, I pray that your hand would just be on this church. Lord, that you give us those with the spiritual gifts that we need. Lord, that we may continue to grow, to build into the body, to meet the needs of those and serve. Give us a heart of not only a mind of unity, but of a heart of love and one in which we're strengthening and encouraging each other. More so as we see that the day of your coming is closer and closer. And we thank you that that's our hope and that's our eternal salvation is found in you. We pray that you would bless us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 6 as we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus the Son of Man. We're continuing with His later Galilean ministry. Today, the title is A Righteous and Holy Man. Jesus, as we saw last week, is beginning to expand His ministry by sending out His disciples to minister. In this way, Jesus increases his ministry outreach. Jesus is following the old method of follow me, watch me, and then mimic me. Jesus is essentially telling them that they will be able to do the things that Jesus has done. Heal the sick, share the gospel, and cast out demons. And we see that they did. 
Once they were spectators, witnesses, and helpers of Jesus and His ministry, now they have been promoted to partners. Amen? Mark shows us how the disciples have been called, prepared, equipped, and sent to proclaim the gospel. He tells them they are to be single-minded in their mission, instructing them that some will receive their message while others will reject that message. But the importance is the rejection of this ministry and of this message will lead to judgment. So there is a sober-mindedness in what they're doing. It is urgent. It is necessary. It is important. From the passage last week, we learned that we too are to mimic Christ in our discipleship by entrusting the gospel to others and to build into the lives of others. We too, as the disciples, are commanded to share the gospel, to trust God to supply our needs, not worrying about the consequences of sharing our faith and trusting that God will prosper our endeavors, not in that He'll meet every want that we have, but the obedience that He has that He will also give us an increase in ministry. And in today's passage, Jesus' ministry is growing in scope and size. His name is becoming known, tales of His ministry is spreading, and His message is receiving a wide audience. People are intrigued, curious, excited, and they begin to speculate, who is Jesus? Mark interrupts his narrative about Jesus' ministry to record today the speculation as it reaches to the high house of Herod the ruler, while also detailing the final days of John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning to ask for your grace as we open your word. Give us wisdom and discernment. Let us see truly what you have written and recorded for us. Lord, that we know that your word is pure and holy and true. Lord, let us accept the sufficiency of your scripture, the importance and the inerrancy of its word. But also let us realize that it's tainted by my preaching in which it's my opinions, my thoughts, my interpretations, though I yield to the Holy Spirit's work in preparing it. So I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment to know the difference between the two. Lord, may they converge in such a way that your spirit will have free reign in the hearts of those that have been praying this week, that have read the passage and let it ready to receive it. Let us listen, Lord, with attentive ears, with ears and hearts that are responsive to the Holy Spirit's work. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to make four observations. The first observation that we're going to make as we look at Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read the passage here in a minute together. But the first observation is the reputation of Jesus is rapidly growing and inviting speculation of who he might be. And let me tell you, this is an editorial note, is that this is the question that you and I are still trying to answer. One day, everyone will stand before an almighty God and give account of who they believe Jesus is. And so today I would ask you as we go on, who do you say Jesus is? Your answer is of utmost importance today. And so they're in speculating who he might be. He's getting a reputation. People are, are asking that question. Even Herod, the king of the Jews, has heard of the ministry of Jesus. It has finally reached the palace. Who is Jesus? Inquiring minds want to know. Normal speculation is arising with everyone sharing their own opinion. Some believe he's Elijah. We read about it a little bit earlier in this scripture reading. Some believe he's a prophet and some even John the Baptist. Look at verse 14 with me as we look at Mark chapter 6. It's on the screen, but also in your Bible, where it says, King Herod, Mark writes, heard of it. For Jesus' name has become known. 
Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work. But in verse 15, others said that he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. You might remember when we talked earlier in the introduction of Mark, that we talked about this speculation of who Jesus was before, especially in regard to the messianic fever that was all in vogue in that day. People recognized that there was something different, something supernatural about Jesus, his ministry and his message. They had seen many teachers and self-professed prophets and messiahs come and go. They were always looking for the next Savior, the Messiah, the one. But Jesus here was different. They had been taught through Scripture, remember, to look for the Messiah. So it wasn't wrong for them to do so. They were taught that this was something they were to do. They were to look for a great prophet. That's found in Deuteronomy 18, where God is speaking to Moses and the Israel. And he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, speaking of Moses from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. He says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. So many are saying, is Jesus, is he this great prophet? They thought John the Baptist might be. But now they're looking and saying, well, John is dead, so maybe Jesus is this great prophet. Some were looking for that great messenger from Malachi 3 and 4, where it says, I send my messenger and he'll prepare the way. Could this be the one who's preparing? Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who's coming before. For he says, he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you light. Behold, he is coming. It even goes further in 4 5 of Malachi, where he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So is this the great prophet that Moses spoke of? Is this the great uh, messenger before that Malachi speaks of? Some even believe that Jesus was John the Baptist. Turn to John chapter 1, if you would. John chapter 1, we see that this was something that was common in that day, and John the Baptist. At one time, they believed that he was either the messenger or the prophet. In verse 15, after we see the word became flesh and the dwelt among us in verse 14, it says in verse 15 that John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes before me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And he goes on and people would say in verse 19, who are you to John the Baptist? And he confessed and said, I am not the Christ. And they said, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? The same thing we're seeing here with Jesus. He says, no, verse 22. So they said, well then, who are you if you're not the prophet? If you're not Elijah, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John gave this testimony about himself. When he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In verse 44, they said, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? He says, I baptize you with water, but there will become one whose shoes I cannot untie. But then we go on. In verse 32, behold, Jesus, or verse 29, Jesus comes down to be baptized of John. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. And eventually he would point his disciples to Jesus. Here is the Lamb. Here is the One. So even John the Baptist, he did not identify himself as the Messiah. But even though he was not the Messiah, even though he was not the prophet, he was a very influential man. And his ministry was so powerful that it caused some to think of Jesus as one who took up John's mantle. The second observation as we go on in verse 16 is that Herod is afraid of ghosts. Well, not really, but he is suffering from a troubled conscience. Herod himself is affected by the ministry of Jesus because it reminds him of his interaction with John the Baptist. Look at verse 16 of Mark 6. But when Herod heard of it, heard of Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Now to you and I, it sounds like a silly statement. How can John the Baptist be Jesus? How can they be the same person? One has died, they both lived at the same time. Well, it's not that the people in Herod believe that John the Baptist resurrected literally from the dead, but in spirit. Just as Elijah and passed the blessing to Elisha, you may remember there in our scripture reading it says, when Elisha asked Elijah, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And he goes, let the double portion of your spirit be upon me. And we see that it winds up. They believe that it passed from one to the other. So they believe the power of John the Baptist has now been passed on to Jesus and Jesus is continuing the ministry of John the Baptist. They believe that he had passed along. So John or Herod here is afraid and says, this is who Jesus is. It's John the Baptist coming to torment me from beyond the grave. The third observation is that Herod had both feared and was fascinated with John, hence why he continues to have John the Baptist on his mind. Look at verse 17, and it tells us a little bit more why. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison, For the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put John to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. And underline this, knowing he that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. See, here's the problem. Here's why Herod is struggling with a troubled conscience, a conscience that has given him sleepless nights. And when he hears of Jesus, he immediately goes back to John the Baptist. For Herod had married his sister-in-law while her husband, his brother, was still alive. And though Herod was not technically a Jew, he was still expected as their honorary king to honor the law of Moses and live according to its law. Leviticus 18.16 says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, for it is your brother's nakedness. In Leviticus 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. This was sin. This could not be tolerated. This is not something that he should have been doing as the head, or anyone should be doing for that matter, but the fact that Herod was doing it was making a very public display of disobeying the law. It's almost like slapping people in the face with his sin. And John the Baptist was a prophet of the old. He boldly proclaimed the truth, and he called Herod out on the carpet, so to speak. 
He did not allow Herod's position to derail him from preaching the truth. It is not lawful for you to have her. It is not right for you to have her. He wasn't going to let it just pass. And though Scripture doesn't give us much detail of that endeavor, we see that he is boldly and courageously in the face of who Herod is, is to boldly preach the truth. And we see several responses to John's ministry and his preaching here. One, we see Herod was puzzled and pleased by him. There was something about John that he just couldn't figure out, but yet he loved to hear it. I don't know if you've ever had that type of thing. Do you ever have someone that you like to read or listen to, and in one case they infuriate you, but at the same time you just like to hear them? You like to read them? Maybe you're married to that person. I don't know. Maybe that's your spouse. But there are some writers. His name is Steve Chapman out of Chicago Tribune. And he writes articles. And he comes from a, a libertarian bit. And sometimes I like to read them because he makes me think. But at the same time, I just want to reach to that computer and say, ah, you know, and just choke him. You ever get that feeling? You know, that's kind of how it is. And I think that's what's going on here with Herod. It's like he's puzzled by him, but yet, He's also pleased by him. There's something about it that's driving him towards him. He respected him, but he also feared him. He knew John had power. He didn't want to touch John because many people had loved John, had been baptized by his ministry. John was a man of influence. He might have been some wild, crazy man from our first message out in the desert doing all sorts of things, but he was a man that could turn things. If anything, if you know about first century Jewish, they were always ready for a fight. They were always ready to, to rebel and revolt. And Herod didn't want any of that because he knew as soon as that happened, then the Romans would come over and they would take away his honorary kingship over the Jews. It was tenuous as it was. And so he feared him, but he also respected him. Herodias, though, works to silence the preacher. She doesn't want anything of it. She's not puzzled by him. She's not pleased by him. She doesn't respect him. She doesn't fear him. However, Herod continued to protect him, for he kept him safe. She wanted him dead, but he kept him safe. Mark describes Herod almost as an undergoing a moral struggle with his actions. Herod knew that John was right, but at the same time, his heart was so filled with lust and desire that he could not listen and obey. Whereas Herodias' heart was filled with nothing but murder. Two different responses. Two different responses. The fourth observation as we look in the next passage is that Herod's lust and his pride leads him to be outwitted by his wife. Look at verse 21 with me. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So a special day, he brings everyone in. And for when we see in verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Verse 24, she's a smart girl. She better go ask mom what she wants. And for 24, she went out and asked to her mother, for what should I ask? He's pleased by my performance. And what we're getting here is not a performance of one of chastity and purity, but one that we would almost liken to a strip club, one in which it was an erotic dance. What should I ask, she said. And her mother said, the head of John the Baptist. 
verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oath and his guests, speaking of his pride, he did not want to break his words to her. And immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in prison. In verse 28, and he brought his head on a platter, and he gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Herodias uses her daughter in Herod's weakness, lust and pride against him. She knew exactly how to get to Herod. She bided her time, waiting and knowing that eventually she'd be able to outmaneuver him. Herod's sin and his weakness led him to be seduced by his daughter-in-law and his niece. His lust led him to make a rash vow, offering half of his kingdom. This is not a literally half of kingdom, but it's an expression of generosity. I'll give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. As his lust continues just to fill his heart. His pride leads him to give in to her demands and kill the John the Baptist. Could have said no. He could have said, wait, well, wait, I'm not going to give you that, but it's pride in front of everyone. He didn't want to back down. From the story, we get the background of the phrase, head on a platter. Asking for the head of one's enemy is to be presented on a platter becomes a phrase denoting a desire for revenge on an enemy. She didn't just want her head. She wanted it on a silver platter. She wanted it something to be displayed. Immediately becomes done. Immediately, Scripture tells us, that Herod regretted his decision, but he was politically outmaneuvered. And there was nothing he could do about it or was willing to do about it. This is pretty much a sad affair of Herod and John the Baptist. This is not the ending that many of us would write for a hero of the faith. But I believe there's some lessons from the life and death of John the Baptist that you and I need to understand. I want to give you three points. The first one is some are going to be attracted to the Scriptures and others will be repelled. This has kind of been Mark's theme throughout the last few chapters, has it not? There's some that are going to be glad to hear the gospel and there's others that are going to just reject the truth. This happens when people follow God. As we become salt and light, it brings both attraction and rejection. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. One of my favorite, favorite passages of Scripture. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the church of Corinth. This is a church that is turning and making their way back to being a healthy church. And he tells them in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 14. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we're a fragrance of death to death. They're going to reject it. But to others, we're a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these sayings? The answer is none of us. But yet God has made it possible for those who are called to those who are brought into His presence. Some will be attracted to our aroma. Some will be repelled by that. 
Herod had kind of a, an attraction to John. There was something like a moth to a flame that he just couldn't get past. There was something about it. Maybe there's that moral struggle. Maybe there's a part of him in which the Spirit was calling him, but yet he could not step all the way. Herodias, though, there was nothing of her point. She cut off his head herself as she had the chance. John the Baptist only lived as long as he did because of Herod keeping him safe. It was in prison, but he had his head on his shoulders. John Calvin writes, We behold in John the Baptist an illustrious example of that moral courage which all pious teachers ought to possess, not to hesitate to incur the wrath of the great and powerful, as often as it be found necessary. For he with whom there is acceptance of person does not honestly serve God. In other words, he's saying is that you and I cannot be stopped or prevented from being the aroma of Christ because we're worried that some will reject us and some may accept us. We cannot be concerned about that. John the Baptist, again, he was one of those ones that is going to speak the truth. Seems like we've lost that in this world. We live in such a world that everything has to be politically correct. Even within the churches and the pews of God's people, we're afraid to speak the truth in love. We're afraid to call out sin and, and to call out the weakness or to encourage one another. And we allow ourselves to continue to live a life that God has not fully called us to. The Bible warns that this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. We need to understand is, as salt and light is when we walk in a room, we ought to be shining light unto the life of others. For everyone who does wicked things, though, hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. I tell you, there are going to be many. As we see here in Scripture 2,000 years ago, the same is true today. There will be those who will be attracted to the message of Christ, and there will be those who will be repelled by the message of Christ. We see that in this world. We see that in our life. You experience that probably even within your own family, within your own workplace, and with your own neighborhood. You probably have already been identified either as one of those type of people, at least you should be. For John is a holy and righteous man. Why? Because he was courageous enough to stand in the midst of those who would reject. Number two, many will actively oppose and persecute believers. It's not enough that some will just reject, but they'll go the step farther. They will actively oppose and persecute believers. Jesus warned his disciples that opposition will be fierce. People will not respond well to the aroma of Christ and will resent having their sins exposed by the truth. It's not that they don't want to hear what you have to say. They just don't want you to say it at all. They don't want you to be able to spread that word at all. The Apostle John warns us that this is the judgment that light has come to the world and people love the darkness again rather than the light. Matthew 10 tells us, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Acts tells us both that the Christians changed and turned the world upside down. 
and that they had favor with both God and with man, and God gave them a daily increase. But yet it also tells us in the same vein that they were flogged and they were beaten. And all the disciples, as far as we know, as tradition tells us, other than John, died a martyr's death. If you were to pick up Ox's Book of Martyrs, you would see throughout the ages, many have died sharing the truth. Many have died and gone to the flames of fire of just trying to give us the Bible in the English language or standing up to protest what was not true. So it's not enough that they will reject it, but they will openly oppose and persecute believers. And so we may be seeing that finally in America in some type of social, political, cultural way. But let's not be surprised. For the Bible says not if persecution comes, but persecution will come. We need to be ready for that. We need to be men that are righteous and holy, ready and willing to understand that and accept the consequences of that. But then the third lesson from the life and death of John the Baptist is not only will some be attracted and some be repelled, it's not only that some will actively oppose and persecute believers, but we see this in the life of Herod and Herodias, is that sin will lead you to ruin and regret. Sin will lead you to ruin and regret. Herod's sin led him to a place where he lost control. The old quote is still correct. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. You think that you're in control and that's something that you have and you just use it like a yo-yo when you want to. You think you're the one on the steering wheel when it comes to sin. But let me tell you, it is not so. Just as Herod's lust and pride led him to kill the one man that he wanted to keep safe, it leads you and I to do the same thing in our life. We think we're in control, that we are the master. However, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the end of sin is judgment and death. There are many people among us that have maybe lost their family or destroyed relationships, burnt bridges because of sin. It leads to ruin and it leads to regret. But let me share with you, that's the wonder and the hope of the gospel, is that God can make those bridges new. He can strengthen them. He can forgive us. He can build us up. He'll lift us up. He takes away that record of wrong against us. Amen? He makes us new within Him. Herod, as we see, never reaches that. But John was a righteous and a holy man. But in this case, being a righteous and a holy man led him to his physical death. As we come near to the end here, I want to share with you what does that mean for you and I. Well, how you and I, we need to be John the Baptist. We need to realize that we need to be righteous and holy ourselves. To do so means that you and I, number one, we need to be courageous light bearers in the midst of this darkness. This world is becoming darker. Maybe it's not becoming more, it just seems more. And I believe that's one of the main reasons because the church's lights and the Christian's lights is dimming. We're not courageous light bearers and salt anymore. 
Matthew 5 tells us you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it in a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me tell you, we need to courageously stand up and shout the truth. It's so interesting. Many people, and I don't want to make a political statement, so I'm not endorsing or unendorsing any candidate, but there are many people enthralled with Donald Trump. Why? Because he's telling the truth. He doesn't want to be politically correct. He's saying many of the things that you and I are either thinking or would like to say. But yet we're the same way in our Christian life. We've hidden ourselves and, and so fearful of being repelled and rejected that we're no longer shining the light. You know, as kids, we used to have the song, I don't know if anyone else used to it, this is the light of mine, I'm going to light it shine. And I'm going to keep going, hiding under a bushel, what? No, no! I'm going to let it shine. But you and I are kind of walking around like putting this light all the way back in here. This is the light of mine, I can't let it shine. This is a lot of mine. It's glowing red and tight. You know, we, we're like, we're hiding everything. And we feel that just because now we're receiving some rejection, some pushback from the culture, we're saying, oh, well, we need to now step back. We need to disengage. We need to now go into huddle mode or start building our religious bomb shelters. No. Is that what John the Baptist did? He stood up in the palace. He says, no, you're wrong. We need Nathans who say, you're the man. We need the Malachi's and the Elijah's and the Elisha's and say, where is the Spirit of God? He's here. He resides. We're to be courageous light bearers. Jesus has given us the mission of sharing the gospel in order to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness into light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified in faith. It's not to say you're wrong, you're evil, but it's that their eyes may be open. It's that the Herods and the Herodias may come and know Christ. Amen? That's what we're called to do. Not to cast judgment, not to make judgmental motives about them, but to say come to Christ. For we were once as you, but now we are sanctified. We need to be reminded at one time we were in darkness, but now we're the light of the Lord and we're to walk as children of light. So we need to be courageous light bearers in the midst of this darkness. It's time that we rub off the little thing and, and shine brighter. Number two, we're to bless and pray for those who seek our harm. Scripture is telling us that we're going to expect persecution. He says in Romans, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he tells us, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we must recognize that they are under the wrath of God. And we need to recognize that they are not our enemies. They are not. There are people whose eyes have been blinded. But he does tell us that it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be the God's will, than for doing evil. And he tells us, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief 
or an evildoer or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Let us stand with our brothers. And like them, let us say, we are glad to stand in the fires of Tyndale and Huss, the others who went before us. Why? Because they too were courageous light bearers. We must rather be identified with them than those that wilt away in times of suffering and tribulation. Then number three is we are to live and die well. We don't like to think about our death. We don't like to think about dying. But we recognize it's going to come. Unfortunately, we don't even need to think about living. We think about, well, what I'm going to do after retirement. We think about what we're going to do about health care. We may think about our families. But we don't think about how we live. So John the Baptist was a great example of how to live and how to die. The end of John the Baptist in this passage makes note that he was a righteous and a holy man. And like King David, he served God in his generation and died. What a great epitaph. To some, John's life and ministry might seem like a failure. Though he preached to many and had many disciples, John pointed them all to Jesus. The next day it says John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked as Jesus walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him and they left John the Baptist and went and followed Jesus. He was put in prison for preaching the truth. He suffered from doubt while he was in prison. He too wondered, Jesus, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? Eventually he lost his head and his life to a hard-headed woman seeking revenge. To many, that would be a life not lived well with not a good death. The Bible tells us he was a righteous and holy man and his disciples in love still gathered his body together and gave him a proper burial. But let me share with you what Jesus himself. For Jesus tells his disciples in Luke that among those born of women, none were greater than John. Jesus continued, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater, though, than John. For today, we must be like John. We, too, must point to Jesus to prepare the way, to be expectant. John pointed to the first advent of Jesus, while we're pointing to and expecting the second advent when he'll return again to judge and reward. You and I must adopt John's philosophy that served him well in life and in death, when he said, Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. Amen? You and I must learn to live and die well. And that's having the same mind of Christ that we see in Philippians 4. That we give it all in obedience to Him. And the fact that we're courageous, we're light bearers for Christ. We were courageous in the face of those things. Trying to open up the eyes of those who have been blinded. So Christian, let me ask you today. Who do you say Jesus is? What's your opinion? What a great way to open up a Christian conversation. Hey, let me ask you, who do you think Jesus is? What do you know about Jesus? If all you watched about Jesus was in the Bible AD, what, what would you say he is? Have you ever read the Bible? Who do you think he is? Great conversation starter. But let me ask you, are you humbly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ? Is your heart prepared and expecting the return of the Savior? Are you boldly sharing the gospel no matter what the personal and the professional and social consequence? Are you? Are you prepared to live 
the life of a righteous and holy man or righteous and holy woman. For Mark records here that John was that man. And to those of you who have not accepted Christ, you don't know who Jesus is if you were to answer the question. I pray that you may see that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the promised Savior, the divine Son of God, sent to fulfill the promises of God to reconcile man back to himself in order that we might be able to see. Would you claim that today? Either way, would you respond to what the Spirit has for you this morning? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'd like for you to take a moment just to pause, to consider, and to pray and to respond. What is He, the Holy Spirit? What is God wanting you to do? In what area in your life do you need to be working? Are you courageously living the life of a light bearer? Are you praying and blessing those that seek your harm? Are you able and ready to live and to die well? I'd pray you to respond to what God may be calling you to do. You are a good God. And I thank you for the life of John. Great man, a righteous and holy man, who lived a difficult, tough life, preparing the way for your son. And even in death, it wound up being a death that many would not want to desire almost as a political tool. Father, I thank you for his example. I thank you for his obedience to you, and I thank you for Mark's narrative and record of John the Baptist. And I pray that we would be encouraged and challenged in our life this morning by his life and his death. We thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son in order to open our eyes that we may see the goodness and the faithfulness of you and your promises. In your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith@orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.